Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I sit down with the very compelling Kelsey Sharon, and we talk about her new book, Brass and Unity, One Woman's Journey Through the Hell of Afghanistan. She is a Canadian veteran who, by the way, served as an artillery gunner in Afghanistan at 19 years old in 2009 with the Canadian, American, and British military. This was not her first battle. As a child, she was a competitive Taekwondo champion from the ages of four to 19. She holds a second degree black belt and national champion. After deploying to Afghanistan at 19, Kelsey was diagnosed with PTSD and TBI, sent home to wage a new war, and that war was within herself. She is a coach within the psychedelic integration space, and she specializes in no surprise leadership. We talk about PTS and PTSD, the use of psychedelics in healing, and how to turn trauma into success. She is doing amazing work. She supports veterans. She is going to single-handedly contribute to stopping suicide with our veteran population. I know it. She's highly motivated, and let's all give her some support. So listen, comment, rate, and share this with a friend. Let's dive in. Thank you to Element for sponsoring this episode of the show. I am a huge fan of Element. It is an electrolyte product and it has little tiny packets that you can throw into your bag. It has 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. It is hot here in Houston. And I tell you what, I'm sweating a lot. Uh, That's kind of embarrassing to say, but it's true. I am using Element at least twice a day. It is really, really helping my recovery. It's helping my training. It's helping my energy. We love this product. Big into grapefruit these days. I'm actually mixing the grapefruit with unsweetened iced tea. It's amazing. You can get your sample packs. You can get free sample packs to try eight different flavors by heading on over to Drink Element. That's Drink D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash a Dr. Lion. You can order your grapefruit and you'll also get a eight flavor sample pack, which I love. I actually put the entire sleeve in my bag, so I always have some. Great product. Love it. If you are a longtime listener of the podcast, you know that I've been supporting Element for quite some time. It's a great product and I know that you're going to love it and especially during summer. So drinkelement.com slash Dr. Lion. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I can't think of a better sponsor for this episode of the show. Mental health is critical. It is something that must be supported. If you understand what is going on in your mind, and even if you don't, it's critical to have a teammate to work through it. You take care of your body. You have to take care of your mind. There's plenty ways to support a healthy brain and a healthy experience. This is one reason why I strongly encourage you to go to BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash 
Dr. Lion. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers videos, phone, even live chat therapy sessions. You don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. You will be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. If this podcast episode is resonating deeply with you, if you have had trauma, if you have something that has been pushed under the rug, please do not wait. Reach out, head on over to betterhelp.com slash Dr. Lion. Our listeners get 10% off their first month. Truly incredible. Strongly recommend you check it out. And I think that this is a really good thing. Kelsey Sharon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> this just worked out perfectly. I can't even believe it. I, either could I. I was shocked. I'm not going to lie. When I reached out to you to have you on the show and we started talking, like, if you're ever in Houston, I'm like, I'm in Houston next week. <laughs> <laughs> so, and here we are. Here we are. Um, I love this show for two reasons. Number one, I get to bring on world experts in their field. And number two, I get to bring on people that are extremely unique, that have had experiences that are incredibly rare, and then become experts within that domain of experience. Mm -hmm. You are one of those people. I don't know that I've ever heard that before, but I'm really excited about it. How many it. female podcasts have you done? Not like one. <laughs> so, <okay>. Like one. <laughs> um, so you are uniquely positioned to talk about things that nobody else is. I believe so. And I, are you ready for this? Right. My, the listener is on the edge of their seat. I know it. 19 years old, female at war. Mm-hmm. A gunner. Mm-hmm. In a combat zone, so you were in, uh, I believe, multiple places, but you were in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about how you got there, okay. what it was like, and I have tons of questions in between, but I, I am so grateful for you to be able to share this because we have both listeners. We have military, non-military, healthcare professionals, people that are struggling, people that really want to remove any physical obstacle, mm. and that's where you come in. Mm -hmm. because you've actually been in the trenches in a way that is astounding. Well, thank you. That's, uh, that's very, very kind of you to word it in that in that manner. I Like, again, I don't know that I've heard anybody describe it that way, but that is, on the outside, that is the reality. And, and for others, especially the American listeners, because I'm not quite sure of your base, but for the American listeners, the reason it was a big deal that I was the woman in doing the job was because until, I believe, 2015, Canada was one of the only countries that allowed women to go and do combat arm roles where it was infantry, artillery, armored, and or EOD. And so for me, when I got that opportunity to ultimately go and deploy, I was the only female on the guns. That was just by design and just because... To be honest, I, I preferred it that way. I'm, I was a tomboy. I said on a recent show that if I were a teenager this day and age, there would be serious questions about my gender because my hair was an inch short. I wore snap tearaway pants, slides, and I was in Taekwondo 24-7. So we all questioned what was going on with me. But really what it was was this, I never really knew myself. I never really understood what I wanted to do in my life. I didn't have a plan to go to university or college and then have a degree in X, Y, and Z and, and find a purpose that way. I never had that feeling. I was the Olympic path was the goal for me. I was a Taekwondo fighter since I was four years old. And that path was ripped away from me out of my own 
it was not my decision. My coach made a very poor decision to sexually assault my teammate for two years and ultimately was put in jail. So the person I had trusted, the male figure, the dominant in my life, mm. whom I even lived with at a point during training, ripped those life plans and goals away from me. And so at that point, I went to college. I pivoted. Obviously, I was an angry little teenager, as most females are, depending on if they find their <laughs> let's be honest with ourselves. <laughs> so funny. Girls are ruthless and when they're young. And so if they're uncomfortable or they don't know themselves, they lash out a lot of times. There's just that fear that's baked in. Um, for me, at least it was. And when I left high school and joined and went to college, that was in 2007. And at that point... I never planned to go to the military. I didn't have military family. This was not in the lineage. We knew about the Afghan war going on. Canada at this point was involved. We had just been switching from uh, more of a United Nations figure over there to more of an ISAF role. So run and gun and like the rest of the Americans. And they needed individuals. So I met a lady on a bus coming back from Remembrance Day, which is your Veterans Day. So you say happy Veterans Day. We say it's Remembrance Day, and it's a day of, 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 of remembrance. We wear the red poppy like the British, and so it's not a celebratory thing for us. So I met this lady, and it was the moment where it was the fork in the road, that spark. What was the decision going to be? Was it going to be the impact, or was I going to stay in college? And I felt a pull to her, and I had a conversation with her, and so much so that it— it drove the decision, which ultimately impacted my entire existence. And I got off that bus. I decided college wasn't for me. I quit college. I found a recruiter's office. And I said, hey, I walked in. I want to join the military. I want to be on the front lines. And the recruiter's like, I mean, I don't know that you know what you're saying, but hey, we need people. And I, How old and were you? How I, old was were you? I was 18. I was 18, yeah. And so my mom and dad are thinking, I'm here in college, I'm playing soccer, I'm doing these things, but really I'm like joining the army to go to Afghanistan. And so they needed people, so they took my docket, we went through, I ended up being sworn in within a couple months. I was in basic training by that January of 2008. I did uh, basic SQDP1, so weapons handling and then trade-specific training, which is artillery. And then at that point, I got posted to the regiment that I was going to deploy to Afghanistan with in September of 2008. How long was that train-up period? So basic training, I'm not sure if it's 12 or 13. So 12 or 13 weeks. Um, that's your basic soldiering. That's where you learn to march. That's where you learn the rules. That's where you learn military etiquette, everything along those lines. And then I went to a four-week SQ, which is your grenades, your rocket launchers, your Carl Gustafs, your, your mortars, all of those weapon systems that you would use, your C7, um, your C8s, your machine guns. You guys call them something different. You call them, you know, like saws or you call them like uh, M16s or so. There's different names for every country. It's the same sort of stuff. You throw the grenade, it goes boom. We all do it. Um, and then we did trade-specific training. So that was when we started to run the artillery guns, which at the time for training were 105-millimeter howitzers, but in Afghanistan were 777s, 155-millimeter howitzers. A little, very different, big boom, little-ish little, little -ish boom. And so we did that training, and by that point, that was August, and I was posted in September. So a total of training-specific was four, more than four weeks or only four weeks? Trade specific was only four weeks. Okay. Mm -hmm. And for the listener, that is an extremely short amount of time yeah. to be put in combat. Uh, just to give you an example, you know, we were talking before this, my husband was a SEAL for 10 years. Mm -hmm. He trained up three and a half years before he would deploy. Isn't that insane when you think three about it? Three and a half years from beginning to end. You And you were um, 19 when you went to war. Yes. 
four weeks of training on the tr- on the artillery gun, the basic training, learning the rifle, learning how to shoot it. You know, that's 12, right. 13. But okay. Yeah, yeah. Four weeks of like, hey, you're, you're an artillery gunner. This is your trade-specific training. And then once we got to the regiment, the next kicker for me was I'm an English-speaking Canadian. My first language is English. I got posted to an all-French first language unit. So you used Rosetta Stone. I didn't. <laughs> I'm just I, kidding. I literally did not. I, I stood there and would ask repeated questions to my sergeant. I would say, Sergeant, qu'est-ce que water bottle en français en anglais? And I would ask him like an like like a dictionary, and I would just kept keep asking him to translate. And then I would pick up little words here and there, and then I'd be like, oh, kind of heard a part of a sentence. So it was Fringlish for me for a long time. And then I learned the remote weapon system. So the I was the remote weapon system gunner in the turret for the T-Labs. So I learned those in French. I learned the mortars in French. I had to go learn all the weapon system I just learned in English. I had to go learn them all in French. By that point, we did a couple uh, weeks of workup in Wainwright, and then we did another week in Texas down here. I think it was Fort Hood or Fort Worth. And then we deployed in April of 2009. Were you excited to go to war? Absolutely. Absolutely. I hate when anybody sits there and is like, well, you know, now looking back. It's like, you were excited. You know why you were excited? Because the media made us excited. The world wanted us to go fight these this faceless enemy that if we went there, they would not come here. And that is where the perception changes after you actually go there. What happened when you got off the plane and here you are, your first were you in Afga- Were you in other places other than, than Afghanistan, or that was the primary? I was primarily like in Afghanistan. We had a stopover point on the way to Afghanistan. It was a base within a base, and that's in a different country. And that's where we would fly in and do three days before we went. We got our kit, we got our plates, we got everything. Then we got on the Herc, and then we flew the five hours to Afghan. What did you feel? Do you remember what you felt when you first stepped off the plane? It's really funny that you you ask me that. No one's asked me that. It is uh, it is a feeling that I'll always remember. It was the moment of, uh, oh, my God, the realization of the decision I just made was a reality, and I was here, and it felt like you were walking into a hairdryer. And it so it hit every sense. It hit the sound with the herc. It hit the heat with the temperature. It hit the 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 um the ground when you stepped off just that like thud the reality of the decision that i chose to make at 18 was now here and it slapped me in the face and i don't know that all of a sudden i was numb at that point to the weight of where i was or i was so excited that fight or flight had already kicked on and i could not differentiate what I was truly feeling, if I was fearful or if I was just genuinely very excited. Probably a mix of both. Uh huh. I have a question. Mm-hmm. When you left your Taekwondo training, mm-hmm. and that was very significant, traumatic event around sexual abuse right. with your teammate, do you think that there was initial trauma there prior to going to Afghanistan that primed you for an experience that, I mean, again, you had a handful of weeks to prepare, probably didn't know what you're getting into. Do you think that there was priming from that Taekwondo experience of the sexual assault with your teammate? I think, number one, that's a super accurate assessment. I, I believe that childhood trauma impacts most people and everyone, you know, they, we all do what we do because of some reason or not. And I know when I look back and I'm able to draw dots, I know for a fact, based off of how my behavior was as a teenager, the rage that I felt, I knew how much of an impact it had it on my life, but not until much later in my life. Hmm. I did get back into fighting when I joined the military and I fought the U.S. Open for my last fight. 
at that point, I realized how damaged I, the amount of damage I had done to my body with the weight loss and the having to maintain a certain body type. It affected my hormones. It affected when I got a period. It affected how I developed. It affected my height. It affected a lot of things. So I fully understood you know, later in life, how much of an impact, not only psychologically, but from a physiological standpoint, Taekwondo really did. And that's not saying all Taekwondo, but the level I was at and the commitment I put into it and the, the two-a-days for most of my life, you know, it had a fairly overarching impact on my existence now as an adult. Mm. And when you then fast forward, you get to Afghanistan, you get into this microwave heat. It's so hot. So, that's what I hear. So hot, lots of sand. Um uh, and probably greenery too, by the way. I didn't I, see much greenery, <laughs> so I'm going to go with the same okay. comment. Yeah. Um, your first, I mean, your first event where there was substantial trauma, mm -hmm. what was that? Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm asking these questions mm -hmm. is, again, the listener, you know, when we think about trauma, and we'll define what PTSD D is, what PTS is, mm -hmm. and what the criteria is for it, because I do think that it's really important to have a commonality in our language. And also, you are such a huge advocate for mental health and suicide prevention, mm -hmm. which is one reason, well, one of many reasons why I was so excited to bring you on. Because as a provider, I can say, well, here's the medication, here's the plan, here's the CBT strategy we're going to use. Mm -hmm. But I haven't been in the shoes of the patient. Yeah. It, and I'm, again, I'm really glad how you are defining it because you hear the commonality nowadays. Oh, I have PTSD from this. I have PTSD from this. I have a TBI from this. The reality is there's a criteria that has to be met. And unfortunately, when you're looking at post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury, they, they share 11 of the 13 commonalities. So what we see in the community, and at least what I've started to see is a lot of the initial assessments with PTSD uh, being the diagnoses, you're seeing individuals getting the cart put before the horse and it's things are being missed right. in such a drastic way that TBIs are going unnoticed. And now you're seeing all of a sudden an incredibly high spike in the suicide rate. Well, okay. Yeah, of course. GWAT's over. This has been going on long enough. And you're starting to see, we understand there's delays in how traumatic brain injury starts to show up. And so the amount that people have struggled up to this point, and then if their testosterone bottoms out all of a sudden, the, the level of depression that comes in, the inability to handle that depression, because maybe that individual never really felt that side of the depression of the PTS, but they're feeling it here. They're not able to cope with it or wrap themselves around it. And we're seeing a spike like we've never seen mm -hmm. before. And I do wonder if it is the delayed onset. You're right. Are you ready? Well, I, I'm, I'm about to throw some urology information oh. on the table. Okay. Get it. There are blast waves that happen. Yes. So they have seen, and this is some new data from, um, there was a recent urology convention. Don't ask me how I know it. I would, I'll refrain from uh, other kinds of jokes, but there's a blast wave that happens. The testicular tissue doesn't show trauma. Really? Shows no trauma. It looks perfectly fine. Okay. From an anatomical, from an ultrasound perspective, from everything. Ye weeks, months, years later, they show uh, no sperm count, um, non-functioning tes testicular tissue, and ultimately low testosterone, mm -hmm. but no overt sign of injury. 
So while we're focused in special operations and we're spoke, we're focused on low levels of testosterone mm-hmm. as to is it just the, quote, allostatic load from stress, right. the blast wave, while affecting the brain, also affects reproductive tissue. And I, the only reason I knew that was because as of recently, I was diagnosed with a TBI that went missed. I just did brain treatment for the first time mm. last year. What kind of brain treatment? Did um, you I did everything from TMS to the cool. death machine. Yes, to the, you awesome. Know, I, I did the entire. We do a lot of a lot of work on the vestibular system. Really, we're really looking at POTS and my dysautonomia because I was the first fe- combat female to be treated at Resiliency in Copel, Texas, three okay. Defenders of Freedom, and so they were starting to see things differently in me that they weren't seeing in the male, which was dysautonomia and POTS, obviously, and with things like PCOS and all. Can you explain what POTS is, and then we're going to also, for the listener, lay out what uh, TMS, which is that transmagnetic stimulation. So basically, um, what Kelsey is saying is that she would be awake, but her brain waves are doing something else. And it's the best feeling. (laughs) I'm not going to exaggerate. It's the best. Why don't you take POTS? Because how they described it to me was very much towards my symptoms, so I think I will... But what are your symptoms? Okay, so for me, I have a lot of vertigo. I have gut issues. I had balance issues. My vestibular system was off. Uh, Blood flow issues, which was a huge one for me. And I don't think people fully understood uh, what happens when you're being adjusted because people have this perception of chiropractic work. But when you're utilizing chiropractic work with a patient with dysautonomia, It can be a game changer for blood flow, an absolute game changer. But for me, predominantly, it was looking at the symptoms that were coming from uh, my vestibular system were so significant. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is, um, and you're going through treatment, being treated. Mm -hmm. So when you, so let's go back to kind of the exposures that you had, because that is really, really critical. Your first experience um, when you got to Afghanistan, can you just briefly take us through uh, leading up to whether it's the first firefight or the first thing where you potentially questioned, you know, did I make the right decision? If you even had that experience? Yeah, I never, I never questioned whether I made the right decision, ever. Uh, well, you're a fighter by nature. Yeah, I, if I'm in it, I'm full, I'm full Love on it. in it, 100%. Uh, that was never the issue. When I was in Afghanistan, we went to an American FOB. So my gun troop was put with an American FOB, which meant we fell under different SOPs and rules and regulations than if we were without a Canadian FOB being the Canadians. So we were experiencing different things and how people and what you could shoot at, what you couldn't, was very similar to uh, Canadian FOBs, but Americans, again, they run a different ship. They use different, um, they're allowed to use different ammunition on people than we're allowed to use. Americans are allowed, well, they were allowed to use white phosphorus. Canadians were not allowed to shoot white phosphorus. So there was those differentiators. But ultimately, because I was in the position I was in, there was a call that came down and a decision that was being made that I was not a part of the conversation. Being a no-hook gunner at the time, why would I be a part of that conversation? Even going to Afghanistan, I had no clue what I was going to actually do other than to pull that lanyard and load that gun. And you would, you would say that most soldiers don't know. I believe so at a certain, because the, you know, there's that conversation of what, who needs to know? 
Who needs to know exactly what you're doing? And, and to what extent do you need to share that information, especially with uh, the lower level soldiers? Like, what would you be causing? Is it more stressful? Like, are you bringing on more undue necessary overthinking about things? We want them to run. We want them to shoot. We don't want them to question what they're doing. And so for me, it came down that I was going to go with the British. I was going to be picked up off of the 777s from my unit and be taken to the Black Watch and the 3rd Scott Battalion. And I was going to go with them on an operation on foot outside the wire. And I was going to be what you now call your CST, your cultural support team. At the time, that really all, all it meant for me was when we kicked the door open, I go to the women and kids and I move them into a separate room and then I search them. Was it because you were female? A hundred percent. How many females were you with at the time? How many female soldiers? In my FOP, mm -hmm. I had one officer, but she's in comms. Okay, right. Officers in comms. Um, but we did not, we don't right. overlap. And how many individuals in the unit? Just to give a visual, are there, I don't know if you call it platoon, are there 20 guys in a platoon and mm -hmm. one female? Is there eight guys going on an op and, and you? How so many? For, so when I was with the British, I had no clue to the extent how many soldiers I would be working with. What it was being told to me or described to me was we don't really use the female very much. The women and children normally flee. We don't have a reason to pull them up. I'm very similar to somebody with the bomb dog or a medic. There's only one or two of you, so you don't necessarily go kick the door in because we need the one or two of you that we have to be alive. And so I wouldn't do the night patrol. I wouldn't, um, meaning I wouldn't sit on the roof, like those types of things until I was on the roof. So when it was necessary. And so when I went with the British, again, I wasn't given any directive. It was your job is to go when we kick those door open, go get the women and kids and move them quickly and do it as fast as possible. I did not have somebody in technically in command of me. My job was, they said, what you need, Kelsey, we're here to do for you. So you tell us, I need you to block the door. You need to do this. We're there for you. And so I, that was the first time I was given my own control as a no-hook gunner with zero experience outside the wire on a job I was not trained to do. Fortunately, my sergeant at the time before we deployed had been infantry and was like, we're going to do a little more training. And I got dialed in on house clearing and door kicking. And I got dialed in on how to you know, run and shoot with a rifle. So it's the reason I didn't get shot pretty much is because I was given extra training because he wanted to make sure. So when you went in and you, when you went in to see the women and children, were you dressed in traditional no. female? So you were in a full kit? Full kit. They didn't, they technically wouldn't even know if you were a woman or not. That was part of the problem at the first compound. So we got dropped off at 0100 in the middle of the Panjawa district, pitch black, and we waited till morning prayer. Once morning prayer happened, we kicked our first compound door in. Then I got called up right away. I got called up so quick. And at that point, I made a joke today on Marcus Luttrell's show. <laughs> I said, I got, um, I got ridden around like a bicycle by a bunch of men because the units would shift me from Alpha Bravo Charlie and I would go back and forth. And what was the point of having, pardon the interruption, yep. what, what was the point of having a female move the women and children? Number one, obviously, um, with the religion where we try to be respectful, right? Even though we are at war, we do follow the Geneva Convention and we do respect others and what they believe in. And that means that men cannot see women with their burqas off. They cannot touch children under a certain, like there is a respect factor where men cannot be a witness of that. But what we understand and Marcus illustrated beautifully today was that if we saw women in the room, it was a problem because if the women is staying, that is 
that genuinely means most likely they're involved, the family's involved. They're not fearful enough of you to leave. They're not fleeing. They're, they're okay, I'm good to stay. But what the Taliban and Al-Qaeda got really smart at was they would use women and children, right? They would use women and children um, to wear vests. They would use them to hide things. And they would use them to put, if we would find stacks of money, that would be a good indicator that you're working with somebody. If you're in a real rural area with no running water and all of a sudden you have stacks of cash, yeah. it's an indicator to us that you're working with somebody we don't want you to be working with. So they didn't want us to find it. So they would put it with women, but they didn't normally have a female soldier to search said women. Did you find anything? All the time. All the time. All the time. How did it change your perception of what you were doing? Because now you're witnessing, you're at war, you're witnessing this utilization of women and children mm -hmm. to hide money, to do things. Mm -hmm. Did, were you thinking or were you just executing? At that time, before things went sideways, I believe I was thinking. I, I was in my body enough to have rational conversation. I was patient with the women and children. I felt for them. I had empathy, deep empathy. When the children would cry, I would do my best to find a better way of searching them, pretend I was tickling them. I would, you know, I would, I would try to be more of a motherly figure in that way. But looking back now, I will be, I, in those children's eyes, if they're still alive, will remember the person that came in and took them away from their parents in the middle of the night and started touching them all over. I am the evil that those children will remember. And that is a really hard thing to sit with. So I did my best as long as I could to have empathy because could you imagine someone coming into your front door and taking your kids into another room and saying, nope, you don't get to come in here. That is the thing of nightmares. So when I look back at it, I had empathy until I didn't. And that's when the firefight starts. That's when the IEDs started to go. That's when the losses started to happen. That's when the roof situation started to go off. And I no longer felt anything. Happiness, sadness, empathy, hate. I was numb. When? We had a soldier. We were we were on, I believe it was our second day. It was June 11th. You have a very good memory, by the way. You know what's funny? A lot of people call me on it and say that, oh, that's not accurate. And I'm like, I, I, uh, I think it is. Mm. I think it's accurate. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. And I know dates because dates stick. Trauma sticks. You know, when you have an event, it sticks. And so that, that event was June 11 at 11 a.m. And we were sitting outside uh, just up against a compound wall. And we were all getting ready to move. And somebody, two men, had gone forward to clear a route for us. And they went into um, – they went down the road and on the left-hand side was a, a, like a gray hut. So basically there's rectangle, rectangles cut of the walls. So there's aeration happening. And one individual went in with a like, metal detector and he hit, uh, whether he hit it with his foot or he hit it with the metal detector, but ultimately there was an IED underneath it and a fairly large one. And that is where we had our first loss. And that was the loss that I witnessed. And that was the loss that I uh, executed, meaning I was a participant in collection and I was a participant in the firefight and I was somebody that helped carry that individual back as much as we could to make sure that we never left anything behind. Um, and that that moment when I, because I did not have gloves on. So at that moment when I started doing collection the way that I was, there was a light switch moment I talk about. And I say the light switch because it's the best way I can illustrate what it feels like when a part of your brain drops a wall for protection. It is, it is, it is like a safe. It's like, nope, 
we're not doing that because we can't. Because if we allow those feelings to go through those neurons, we're not coming back from this. And I remember very distinctly one of the individuals, uh, platoon sergeant, who actually wrote a review in my book. He tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Burns, are you okay? And I just went, yeah. And then I made a joke, a very aggressive, very dark joke that I've told before. And I won't tell again because people really get angry about it. But that's the reality when you're at war. There are dark things that happen. And if you don't deal with them in your way, it will break every bit of you. So that was the situation. And at that point, once we got everything done, the Pedro flights took off. We had 15 minutes before we were going to roll to the next compound. And I had blood on my hands and I became uh, obsessive with rubbing my hands, almost in an OCD fashion, trying to get it off, not being able to. Conscious or unconscious? Unconscious completely. And to the point where the medic came over and was like, you're good, you're good. Here's some hand sanitizer. You know, and I just, just, just rub, rub, rub. And I could, I had the blank long stare happening. And I remember it because it's still to this day the reason why I cannot eat food with skin on it or I cannot touch raw meat. Do you still see those images? Yeah, those are things that I think I'll see until I, the day I die. Even with all the psychedelic treatment and all the internal work that you've done? I think you see the images. It's about how your body responds to those images. I don't think I can. It's you talk to any other any other uh, veteran or, or first responder who has seen something that will mark them for the rest of their lives. I think you'll always remember, but I think how your body responds will not always be the same. And it's, it's dependent on the work that you do. So I know that when I talk about this now, I don't break down crying. Now, when I went on Jocko two years ago, I was hysterical because it was the first time I had said out loud in public some of these things and I was getting a a feedback loop happening mm -hmm. with another individual who knew and felt what I had felt because he had felt it too. And there was a feedback loop happening for me. And it was a very intense experience. But now when I talk about it, it's not that it hurts any less. And it's not that it's not any, that I don't see it clearly and I can still smell it and I can still feel it and I can still hear it. It's not any of those things are gone is I've done so much self-work. I've been able to differentiate the feeling from the thought and how I choose to work on those things has allowed my nervous system to no longer stick in that fight or flight that I lived in for so long. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. They say that the human um, nervous system regulates through, you know, eyes are an extension of the nervous system. Right. And so that, that there is this, uh, this regulation between people. Mm-hmm. And mm -hmm. that's so interesting that, you know, because Jocko is very stoic and contained. Yeah. And it's interesting that there's another individual there that had potentially experienced the same things. Mm -hmm. And so their nervous system kicked up. And so between the two of you, it. I feel things yeah. very intensely. I have since I've been little. Mm -hmm. And so when I started to do a lot of self-work and really utilize psychedelics and in, into the, the fullest extent, it opened me up even more. And so I can feel someone before they even walk in the room and I can choose to react to it. But now I know how to handle it rather than have uh, having such an intense reaction or a response. Mm -hmm. Before, it wasn't a choice. The frontal lobe was not on. It was not working. My executive function control, being able to make those decisions or have conversations without having a cortisol spike was not a reality because it wasn't firing. There was nothing we had nothing going on up there. There was the reason why I could never make a decision, whether it was in business or life or, for God's sakes, ask me to pack. Watch what happens. Well, packing is pretty rough. 
I was having disproportionate meltdowns in the in the closet because I could not make a decision. All from the trauma that you had experienced. Well, now we know the TBI as well. So that is the beautiful thing about the blast waves you're talking about. Because recently with my traumatic brain injury, we've had to put the claim into Veterans Affairs. And Veterans Affairs Canada and all of the military have come up and showed these studies and these research. And they have the blast waves dialed down to every single weapon that you fire. Well, when you stand beside an m millimeter howitzer that shakes the earth, it sends a concussive blast every time you pull that lanyard. Now, if that's near HESCO, that concussive blast is going to smash back off and hit you again. And that's what I used to do for a living. So, of course, my brain is rattled. I'm the same height as that barrel. It's going to smack me in the face. And that is what happens when people use rifles inside, too. It's so much worse in indoor ranges because of the blast and the coming back. The thing that has changed so much, though, is... The utilization of not only the psychedelics, but in conjunction with the brain treatment and things like the ketones. Yeah. So I uh, am a triathlete. I've got into that recently. And then I do a lot of road biking. But because my TBI was throwing me off, I was having glucose lows like you would never believe. I'd be eating really, really healthy, lots of meat, um, lots of water, lots of sleep, very good movement schedule. So I'm not overdoing it. And yet, no matter what I was doing, I was having these glucose lows like out of the blue, and they felt horrific. Mm -hmm. So we slapped a monitor on, started checking it, and trying to correlate what was going on. I started using ketones, and I haven't had any since. And it's obviously because my heart rate is irregular due to the TBI. I have a higher heart rate. I have some blood pressure issues. I have the things that are going to affect the constant burning. Like, I'm always burning more than other individuals. Mm -hmm. My resting heart rate is very high. <laughs> I know a good doctor for that. I mm -hmm. might just uh, bring you into the practice and, and help you. Be a little guinea pig, help huh? you. Well, we do it all the time. Help uh, slow all that stuff down. Um, how many traumatic events like that did you have? So you have this, um, you know, other soldier. Mm -hmm. You witness him mm -hmm. get blown up to, you know, pieces. You're collecting the pieces to bring him back because no soldier is left behind. Um, you're not wearing gloves and you're picking him up. Then you're on to the next thing. Yeah. There's no downtime. No. Then what? What is the next event? The next the the next event was you know an hour later moving from compound to compound into firefights. They were they knew we were coming. That is the thing. In 2009, it was a very nasty time. There was there were certain years in Afghanistan that were nasty, and they were strategic, and they were taking people out hand over fist with IEDs. IEDs were brilliant tools and that could do mass damage and they did it effectively and they got it down to a science and they were using our garbage to do it and so it was very frustrating we would go to a compound and we would wait there and then we would go to move again and we were under firefights again there was a situation the next day where we were moving from compound to compound and I was with my my group of guys and it was uh, the platoon sergeant at the time was Stephen Noble and he had pushed us into a compound building and he said, I get on the roof. And I had no issue with that. I was ready to play because now I'm angry, right? And now I'm numb and I feel nothing, but you just took one of our people and I heard you on the ICOM radio cheering about it and praising God about it. So now you've you've ticked a lot of people off. So this was this was time. This is my turn now. This is how we pay you back. 
So I jumped on the roof and I had no issue with that. And we were laying down fire. And when the sharpshooter jumped down to get more ammunition, and this is where the squawk is with some individuals, no sniper would ever leave the rifle. We're all right there and he's getting ammunition. Of course, he's going to jump down to get ammunition. But as he jumped down and do the length of my body, his rifle was the length of my body. And we took three rounds. We were being flanked and didn't know it. And those three rounds missed my hip by inches, inches, and went into the buttstock of the rifle. So... There was some situations like that where you don't realize what's happening until after it has happened. So you don't, you can't wrap your brain around, oh my God, that was, that was a close call. That was a situation. And so there was a lot of things like that that were happening. And then they, the women would fight back and we would have, I would have little squabbles with them and choosing to be violent, rather lethal violence was a choice I was allowed to make in those situations because it was just me making those decisions in a room with up to 12 people with another woman coming at me. So I was doing my best to make rational choices when my brain wasn't working and I was 19 years old. Like so many of the soldiers that were over there were 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. I didn't know anyone except for my staff over the age of 30, we were all kids fighting in a war that none of us had any business being in that ultimately damaged the next generation. Like we, we took a whole generation of people. We all went and fought and then we came back to silence from veterans affairs, silence from our government, silence from those around us saying, well, there was really no terrorism. You should never have been there. So it, every little thing that happened plays a part in building on that trauma and stacking those events and highlighting humanity's downfalls, really. And so even though I had only done one deployment and even though I only did four years because after that operation, they started to di they diagnosed me right away. I mean, that's that's pretty significant. I mean, this is not a deployment in a uh, quiet place, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as yeah. someone would say. They diagnosed you right away with PTSD uh, or acute PTSD? P acute PTSD at the time, okay. which by the time I left country, they had solidified as, uh, I believe it was severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. And for the listener, there's a, a handful of criterium, which include has to be a major traumatic event that an individual is exposed to death, threatened by death, serious injury, actual threatened or sexual violence. It could be direct exposure, which you had witnessed the trauma, which you also had, um, or learning that a relative close friend experienced trauma, which you also saw, and then indirect exposure, which would be... Um, you know, um, someone else going into, you know, like a first responder, um, you know, and then the other criteria is re-experiencing flashbacks, yeah. avoidance, uh, avoiding people, avoiding things, and then um, negative alterations in mood and cognition. I'm sure that this is all really familiar to you. Mm -hmm. And I'm outlining it because you are now doing integration work. And I think it's very important that we all are talking about the same thing. Um, another part of the criteria is that there is a alteration in arousal and reactivity, become very angry, um, or you're just highly aroused. Uh, duration lasts more than a month and symptoms cause dist distress or functional impairment within your life. Right. 
and I ugh, did I ever have every single one of those? It got to the point where in country we would be walking around calf while I was waiting for doctor's appointments. And if you didn't have a full magazine on you, it was a problem. You always had to have a magazine on you and your rifle wherever you went. And I didn't have any ammunition left because we had used it all during the firefight and I hadn't been given any more since I came back. And a warrant officer decided to call me on it. And when I say that I overreacted, I not only called him every name of the book, but I did it from a no-hook gunner to a warrant officer in front of a lot of individuals. The disproportionate reactions that I was having were completely out of my control in the sense of I'm not saying... I'm not trying to drop owner, uh, ownership, but what I'm saying is I, at the time, did not feel that I could control my response. I was not sleeping. I was not eating. This would go days on days on days of this. My anger levels were at a different level. Uh, I paced excessively. I would have regular flashbacks of the event. And to top it off, when I did go try to talk to people in my unit, I was met with, that never happened. So when you have somebody who is de devaluing the one of the worst things that have ever happened to you in your life, the response internally, it becomes this combustion that is about to crack. And if you don't somehow deal with this, this person is going to ultimately commit, uh, die by suicide, or they're going to, they're going to lash out at anything and everything, and they're going to bleed on everyone around them. And is that what happened to oh. you? Yeah, it, it, it got, it got to the point where when I was in country, they put me on 11 different pharmaceutical drugs. I was 100 pounds and 19. And so many of these now knowing have contraindications was blows my mind. And then they sent me back out to the FOB. So I was running a machine gun and the 777s and I was while on high 11, as a kite. Yeah, while on 11 different medications. Antidepressants, antipsychotics, uppers, downers, you name it, all of them. And then once that didn't go well, they sent me back to CAF and said, okay, you're going back three weeks early before the rest of your unit. And I was going to report to my unit and then to the hospital. And so that's what I did. And so I was ripped away from my unit, not told that I was going. Did you feel supported at the oh, time? Oh, God, by no. Your, no, 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 no. By no. your unit? Okay. No, 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 no. No, no. No one knew I was gone. No one knew what had happened to me. They didn't tell anybody anything. And I never saw those guys again. Ever. And the only time I saw that sergeant again was a year and a half ago. We reconnected when I was writing this book. And it took the Canadian Army that long to acknowledge what they did. And they just last year brought me out to Gagetown, New Brunswick because of my sergeant and because of one of the COs to let me go and do my last round as an artillery gunner and welcome me back the way I should have been welcomed back when we came home. Heavy. It was a lot. That's so heavy. Mm-hmm. During that time, you probably weren't even thinking about what do you need to do to take care of yourself? What are the things, eating well, doing any of that stuff? You were literally in survival. Beyond survival, there was no sleep. There was no eating. It wasn't about, I didn't want to live. So why would I go through the work and the education and all of these steps to better myself? CBT wasn't working. Antidepressants weren't working. All of the things they told me that would work were not working. And the thing that I want to acknowledge here, because these are the standard forms of treatment, a couple of weeks ago, I, I testified at the Senate subcommittee in Parliament about and advocating for psychedelic use for veterans. And we had this conversation and I stated very clearly and emphatically mm -hmm. that CBT and antidepressants, they are an epic failure. They are a gross failure on the part of the system to try and fix veterans. CBT can work. 
antidepressants can work. But you know as well as any other doctor, on the doctor's desk handbook, they're supposed to be used for short-term use only, not for decades at a time. And that is what we are being used as, as vending machines. And that's what Veterans Affairs and the pharmaceutical companies have been doing now for an extended period of time. And you're seeing the backlash with the hormones issues and you're seeing the issues with individuals in the longevity when it comes to fitness, mental wellness. It's just not there anymore because the medication has beaten people down to the point where they don't, number one, they don't think they can function without it. And number two, if they do function without it, they believe that they won't be able to survive. And this is, I mean, and what you're talking about is definitely extreme cases. So if you guys are listening, um, can SSRIs, can uh, medications be used? Yes, under the guidance of a physician, but you should be seeing improvement. Right. Um, there, there should be improvement. And it's so interesting when you look at the pathophysiology of post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic stress and TBI, there are a whole host of things that happen to the brain, to the brain pathways. You know, you mentioned alternative treatments, which I am hoping will gain more mainstream. For example, you mentioned uh, transmagnetic stimulation. There's things like a stellate ganglion block, yep, which well. um, I, I think that these are uh, safe, non-pharmaceutical ways. But what's so interesting um, is that you do talk about these alternative therapies. And just to lay it out for people, there's the psilocybin, right? And that works on a 5-HT2A receptor. There's ayahuasca, mm -hmm. which I think that you have talked about. And there's a lot of literature. Actually, I was doing um, some literature review searches. There's you know DMT. There's all kinds of things that ayahuasca does and has been used for a very long time. Um, whether it affects the serotonin system, dopaminergic system, and then there's the endocannabinoid system, which I think that you talk a lot about. When you got home, you went on all these medications, you were on 11 medications, you're 100 pounds. Was there a moment, and obviously you had also mentioned you're having suicidal thoughts. Incredibly intense, intense suicidal thoughts. And didn't you lose two of your teammates or two people close to you to suicide? Oh, I... I've had two phone calls this week alone. We, this is a chronic, this is, this is constant. Is this why you do what you do? Yes. It's 100% why I do what I do. I don't make a damn penny off of anything I do. I've never paid myself. I've been doing this since 2015. What is success going to look like for you? The suicides need to stop. People, what success looks like to me is... The individual who thought he was stronger than the voices or the individual who thought if he asked for help, it would make him look weak or her look weak. It would be those individuals coming forward and taking charge of their life and ownership of their life and saying, I don't want to live like this anymore. I need some help. Can someone please help me? That's a win. Every time I get those calls, that is a win. Every time somebody says, hey, I... I finally said to my doctor, I don't want to feel like this anymore. I've been on these meds long enough. I want to try something else. And then they successfully transition off of a medication and they're feeling better. That is a win. How did you go from medication to alternative therapy? Thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. We talk a lot about brain health, body health, and health in general. One reason why Inside Tracker is so valuable is you can actually test what is going on in 
inside your body. How you feel is not necessarily how you are. It's critical to know. Head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. You'll be able to test a whole bunch of different biomarkers. There's multiple different packages that you can purchase. It is very easy and very important. Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, all of it. Head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion, and you can get 20% off the entire store. Why is this critical? Because we all age through different means. Sometimes it's just age as it relates to a number, and other times it's age as it relates to trauma and things that our bodies have been through. All of these have the potential to accelerate aging. And oftentimes, there are things that we can do to mitigate our experience and the effect it has on the body if we catch it early. For a limited time only, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. Special thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. And listen, when you can get everything through Whole Foods, it's great, but oftentimes you can't. And especially when you are dealing with things related to brain health, mood, cognitive function, heart health, we oftentimes think of omega-3 fatty acids. There's a lot of good evidence that it supports um, resiliency, meaning it can help with depression. This is omega-3 essential fatty acids. It can help with depression. It can help with brain development. It can help with cognitive enhancement as you age. And if you are like me, you don't eat a ton of oily fish. I love First Form products, especially their omega-3 fish oil. We use this in our house. It's a foundational product for us. It has EPA and DHA. These are two healthy fats that most of us don't get enough of. You can head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. That's first, one S-T-P-H-O-R-M dot com slash Dr. Lion. And I strongly, strongly encourage you to add a omega-3 essential fatty acid to your nutritional plan. Of course, check with your physician, but this is very well established within the literature and its benefits are really, really critical. So fullmegafirstform.com slash Dr. Lion. So I was given those drugs for a long time and it was very obvious that the life that I wanted was not going to happen with these these interventions that were happening. Why? Why? Because I was numb and I and not to just numb, I there was no joy in life. You can only sustain that so long before you realize that joy has to happen. And it doesn't mean stuff and it doesn't mean um, necessarily uh, events or, or podcasts or, you know, great, awesome things that happen in life. It means I want to wake up today and I want to think clearly. I don't want to have brain fog. I don't want to have pain, chronic pain. And I want to be able to smile today. And not because I'm forcing it like, hey, I know I should be doing this. Because it comes naturally. I just wanted to feel again. Being numb like that is so difficult when you're trying to go through life and find a life partner and become a parent and go through these incredible things where you know, you know, rationally, I should be feeling something here, but I'm not. That's really, really sad. That's a sad way to go through life. So it got to the point where a lot of these drugs I would take at night and my husband would 
say you're having conversations and I wouldn't have a clue. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would cook and I would eat and then I'd wake up on the floor. So there was things like this that were starting to happen. I had no libido my entire 20s. It's the most, and still now we're working on it because it's such a hormone issue with me. But these things were being taken from me. I was being robbed of what it meant to be a woman. I was being robbed of what it meant to be uh, a happy adult. And of course, I didn't think that these things wouldn't have a long-term impact, but the medication was something that I was not aware was so <sighs> overused and so quickly used without even having a different conversation. And Jocko asked me this question. It was one of the best things I've ever been asked. And it was, Kelsey, do you think that if your superior sat you down or someone sat you down and said, what you're feeling is normal, what you're thinking is normal, this will pass instead of going, this is what you're ha what's happening to you. This is what you have. These are the pills you're going to take. I was never given time to understand what was even happening with my body. I was just medicated. So I could never process because I wasn't given that opportunity. I went into space. I was just existing. I wasn't living. Yeah. And so I started to talk to my doctor about it and we slowly started to wean off the sleep medications. And that's when we started to integrate cannabis. So at this point, we wanted to have a child, and we knew for a fact that I could not be on a lot of these drugs to have a child right. without any sort of birth Right. Mm -hmm. Birth defects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we started to have the conversation with my doctor, and he said, look, I think for sleep, this might, cannabis might be a good step for you. But I grew up in the state, I mean, in Canada, in the, the province, and where people believed that if you, you smoked cannabis, you were lazy, you were going to end up on the couch, you weren't going to amount to anything in your life. And at this point, we had already had some research behind how cannabis could help with sleep and how it could obviously affect with hormones, but we weren't, we're, we weren't concerned about that. And how long ago was this when you started um, using cannabis as kind of a transition? 14, 15? 2000. And were you concerned about having a child with all the trauma that you had experienced? It was in the back of my mind, but I believe everyone can heal. And I, I love that. Yeah. I just, I think if I lived my life with all the fears I have, I wouldn't be sitting here today. So I had to take the chance. I knew I was a good human. I knew we had the resources to raise a child. I knew we had a support system and a network around me. And that was key. I had a family support network that I knew would be there when we needed them. And as often as I needed so I was very aware of what we were about to do. Now, when we got pregnant the first time, that child ultimately did not make it. We, we ended up having um, a miscarriage. And I understood that too. But I was fearful then at that point that, okay, maybe because of the damage that was done, or at the time, this is where the PTS stuff comes in, maybe I didn't deserve a child because of the things I had done. And that is how I know the trauma was so deep and still not healed and was not getting any better. So we did a full, after that, there was a full year where we tried again. But because, and I tell so many women this, because they don't, I want a baby so bad, I want a baby so bad. But when you eat, sleep, and breathe, wanting that baby, the stress that it puts on your body and the weight of it. Yeah, totally. It's not going to happen. I remember to the day I said to my husband, I'm done with this. We're done with this. I can't do this anymore. I'm not exaggerating that next day we conceived. And that's my, the, my son that we have now. At that point, I was still utilizing cannabis throughout pregnancy and not THC, but CBD and through oil. I was less concerned about what the CBD would do to the child 
I was more concerned about the stressful environment that my body was putting on the brain and the development of that child and wiring it for stress. What did CBD do for you? At the time, CBD brought a lot of the the inside inflammation down, which I understand now was a lot of my TBI. It brought my inflammation down. But because of some of the injuries I had, I have a permanently separated shoulder with no collarbone. So I have chronic pain in my shoulder. I've had knee surgeries. I've had broken feet. So my body really loves CBD for inflammation. And it would take a lot of that out. And it would bring the anxieties down and the paranoia down and that fight or flight state. And was this from was this from Taekwondo or this was all from deployment? The feet were Taekwondo. The eyelid was rugby. The shoulder was uh, mountain biking and a misdiagnosis and a bad surgery. Correction, good surgery, bad recovery room nurse move. Mm. She flipped my chair when she tripped on a cable and I moved my arms up after a surgery and tore everything that was in there, which led to an infection and dissipation of the collarbone. So I'm missing a gap in a collarbone and a permanent separation. Got it. And then ACL surgeries, you know, just the a very stuff. active, athletic. Mm -hmm. Uh, tactical yeah. warrior type body. Just sore body type. You know, by the time I was 19, <laughs> yeah. I felt 65. It was fantastic. So it helped a lot with that. And what I was really trying to achieve ultimately was a calm, relaxing space in utero so the brain could develop properly and not wire for anxiety and stress. Because I knew growing up in a family where the form of communication was yelling, mm. that it was not going to bode well. And I wanted to do this differently. I really, really, really was conscious of this. And it was, it was, it worked quite well for me. Throughout the pregnancy, it went not too bad. At the end of pregnancy, he came a month early, which was a bit of a shock, but it was okay. And everything was fine. And then postpartum kicked. Oh, postpartum. That's major. Oh, nobody talks. Oh, postpartum depression. That is a major thing. And when you stack it on top of the other things I was yeah. going through, and then he got really sick at first. He got really severely jaundiced. So then I went into this fight or flight that I was losing my child when we had to bring him to the NICU and then do the light therapy. And, you know, I was a young mom. I was 27. I was just fearful. Now I'm losing something else. And there was this fear because of how the situations went overseas and how quickly somebody was standing there and somebody was gone. I have, I had a lot of fear of losing people. So I squeeze really tight. I don't know. I understand boundaries now. But I used to do that at a very in intense level. So once my son came out and everything went on there, that, that took a, about a year for me to acclimate to motherhood and get my body. What I thought was feeling good. But really what I figured out was up until last year with brain treatment, I didn't know what good felt like. I was living with all of these issues, but I just figured that was normal because no one tells you when you get out that chronic headaches are not normal, that looking concussed. If I look back at photos and podcasts, I look concussed all of the time. No one tells you that you shouldn't be chronically bloated no matter what your diet is. No one tells you that your balance should be pretty good. It shouldn't be. You shouldn't rock when you stand still. But I used to just rock unintentionally, but because my vestibular system right. where I was in space was not matching. So nobody really describes these things to you. So at that point, my doctor and I took a different path and said, we have to come up with something else here if I'm going to sustain some type of healing. And I wanted to be a more present mother and I wanted to be a better wife. And I was present, but the anger was still there. The Paranoia was still there. I would take my son out and my head would be on a swivel. I couldn't do anything or feel safe. Yeah. 
And that ultimately is when I started to go off a couple other medications, which was fine. And I was left with one. By the time I got down to 2019, beginning of 20, I was only on one SSRI. And it was the same one I had been on since I was put on of them. So for my entire 20s, for an entire decade, I fluctuated between 125 and 150 milligrams of Zoloft every single day. That wreaks serious havoc on your body. And the long-term repercussions are stuff I'm going to be dealing with the rest of my life. And it's because we, going through this process, we, my doctor ultimately also diagnosed me with major depressive disorder. So those often stack and it wasn't, they do. I wasn't yeah. fearful of it, but it was just great. Another thing, we're going to have to do this. And then it got to the point again. And at this point, I've had the business. It was successful. We had it so everywhere. you already had Brass and Unity. Brass and Unity started in 15. And the last SSRI left when I was given the opportunity to go do ayahuasca. How did that come up? Brass and unity? No. The ayahuasca? Yeah, because you had struggled. Right. Uh, probably wasn't. I don't know if it was on your provider's radar because it's not really standard of care yet. I think eventually it will be. Um, and then you, they are utilizing ayahuasca for typically veterans that have gotten out. Mm-hmm. How did that present itself? Yeah, I started a podcast in uh, the Brass and Unity podcast in October of 2021. And a friend of mine who well, I can call a friend now, at the time, my husband said, you know, you should get some sponsors for your show. You should try and get some. And I said, well, I don't have any viewers yet. And he's like, but just, you've got the brand. You've, you're known in that space. You should be able to get something. So he goes, do you remember that Shark Tank episode with the flip-flops and the bullet shoes? Like the, I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And he goes, why don't you reach out to Combat Flip-Flops? They're, they're run by two former rangers. Like, why don't you reach out to them? So we did. They answered back right away. We, you go together like peanut butter and jelly. I was like, let's do it. And then my husband goes, you know that you have to actually have to invite people on to the show? And I was like, all right. Will you come on the show? It was my first kind of bigger guest, and I wasn't sure, and I was quite nervous. And he responded, yeah, absolutely. So – I got the opportunity to sit down with Griff and we were having a conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he leaned into the camera and he goes, how you doing? And if you know Matthew Griffin, he looks into your soul and through you because he sat with so much medicine. Now I understand. And I said, oh, I'm good. I'm good. You know, the facade that we all put on ourselves and, and show everyone, oh, everything's fine. It's fine. And then he asked me one more time and he leaned in and he goes, how are you doing? And I buckled. And I mean buckled. I had been struggling again, and I was getting very frustrated. I have an amazing husband. I had a great child. Business was doing well. We were in Ellen. We were in Forbes. We were on GMA. We were in Kevin Hart. Like, you name it. I was living the dream, and I still wanted to die every single day, and I could not make it stop, no matter what I was doing. Working out, eating healthy, drinking water, sleeping lots, still had headaches, still had X, Y, and Z, and I couldn't figure it out. Mommy was having more bad days than good, right? And now, How many days out of a week? Oh, man, out of seven, five, I'd be on the, on the stairs crying at something. Mm. Um, and it was, it was to the point, it was 2020 I started the show, my, my mistake. It was to the point where I wasn't super happy with where my thoughts were going again. And I also had enough family and friends to know that, you know, this isn't normal. And I had seen people who were taking their lives who had children. And I know what that child's going to have to go through now. And <laughs> start saving tra trauma because you're going to need therapy and a lot of it. And you're going to need ways to cope. And 
I didn't want to do that, but I also knew I couldn't do this. And he said, look, I don't know if you've ever heard of ayahuasca. I said, yeah, I think I heard it on like some weird off the cuff, like really strong psychedelic, you know, just like an off the cuff show. And he said, look, there's a, there's an organization called Heroic Hearts Project. They facilitate this with veterans. I can get you in touch. There is one in 30 days in our group and you can come. So I got on the phone with Jesse Gould from Heroic Hearts Project. And he was like, listen, you just can't be on an SRI, SSRI. So I said, okay, I won't be. And he goes, okay. So I called my doctor. And this guy put it into context, served in Bosnia and Rwanda during the genocides. And he's a hard dude. And I go, look, Doc Passy, I, I'm going to go off it. And I know it's dangerous. And the way I'm going to do it, you're not going to prove it. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not calling for permission. I'm letting, giving you situational awareness. So if the other shoe drops, you know to send something. You know why. Exactly. And that's what we did. And it was the worst, most intense withdrawals I've ever experienced in my life, most painful, excruciating withdrawals. And I would never advocate for a single person to ever do it the way I did. It's so dangerous. What happened? Oh, my God. It's like I I would stand up and show you, but it's so dramatic. I would be sitting there, and my head felt like it was cracking and exploding. It was – if my body was sitting still, the inside of my head looked like I was at a Led Zeppelin rock concert. I was just – my head was headbanging. It felt like my whole body was doing that. I had no balance. I could not sleep. I was irritable beyond all get out. It was painful physically head to toe in the weirdest way. And it's so hard to describe because I've never felt anything like that since. And then I went and I sat with the medicine with a group of individuals. And here's what I'll tell you about that. Of course, the medicine took a, was a big, big part here, 98%. But I don't want to overlook the fact that I was dropped out of a community and left to be on my own. And this is the first time I had been welcomed back into a community who did not question me, who did not judge me. Again, I was the only female, but instead I was not with people who were my rank. I was with rangers and seals and blackwater operatives and people who I held in such high regard who just looked at me like a normal person and say, hey, welcome home. So there is such a healing aspect to community that gets overlooked and the importance of it. And so I want to stress that when I say, yes, it was ayahuasca and yes, it was integration counseling on the front end and the back end. And yes, it was sitting in ceremony, but the community aspect is so, so important to acknowledge. And that's what I was given in that moment. Hmm. When you, so they say that one of the reasons why ayahuasca works, well, there, there's many reasons, but it allows the subconscious to come up and begin to process. Mm-hmm. Did you experience that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ayahuasca being a master plant has an entity. You hear people say Mama Aya. Mama Aya is a real, real, she's a real, real. And by the way, I just want to point out before this, you were not, it was not as if you were spending your whole life in some kind of spiritual journey that you knew of and you weren't reading chakras or doing any of that stuff, right? So I, I, not that there is anything wrong with those things, but that was not where you were coming from. Absolutely so not. you are coming, you are a veteran gunner who has gone through a ceremony taking plant medicine and is coming out the other side explaining it, um, which is almost um, not what one would expect, right, in yeah. that way. Yeah. The, the the thing that a lot of people said to me when you came out was like, don't be the billboard. Don't be the veteran with the billboard for this. Like, don't don't go out and, and, and talk about all the fantastical things that happen in it because it's hard for people to wrap their brain around – 
what do you mean you were flying on a dragon doing this? What does that represent? How is that helping you heal? But in the first three ceremonies that I sat in, I wasn't doing anything of fantastical. I was being shown the really dark things that were hap that happened in my life that my brain had walled off. It was uh, an opening of the mind in a safe set and setting where ayahuasca could come in, hold me, if you will, in my consciousness in her arms and say, I'm about to walk you through hell. And it's about to really, really hurt, but I promise if you just trust me and let go here, you're going to come out of this and you're going to be reborn. But you have to give me three days of your life and it's going to suck. And at no point are you going to want to do this again. And did it? Did oh. you do it for three days and did it That's suck? That's how it should be done as far as I'm so... A minimum of three days. So you could do, you know, some people do three, they do five nights, they do seven nights, depending on what you're doing and where you're doing it. Where I was at the time, that was three, it was three nights in a row. So you have the first night, which is the night where you drink Aya and you you have the experience, but it's not fully saturated your body, right? The second night is a lot more intense because now you're already saturated a little bit from the day before. And then the third night, Aya is fully flowing through you, right? It's fully in your body. And you can feel it during the day when you're not in an active state. You can notice things. You can feel things. Everything. You can feel the medicine within you, but you're not having visuals. You're not actively in the ceremony, in the medicine that way. It's just in your body. And how do they – because you're, you're tiny. How do they dose it? Is it the same for everybody? Do we know kind of – how that works. So with the individuals that I sat with, they they practice with the Shipibo tribe. Okay. And so that is the tribe from Peru. That's where ayahuasca, as far as I've known, originates. It's the it's the Mecca of Aya. And for my size, it is more of they gauge it based off of what the medicine guides them to give you. And this is where we smash science and woo-woo real quick. And this is where people start to have a hard time with this because yes, in set and setting, if you're doing a medical test, there's going to be obviously a control. There's always, there's going to be a proper dosing. Right. And of course. It's, it, it's going to be very specific, but in, in spiritual settings, in this sense, this is up to the shaman or the maestro or the mistra to listen. So when I was in Peru, for example, they sat with the medicine and when it was your turn to come up, you give them the cup and they would look at you and listen to the medicine to hear. And then they would pour based off of that. It's wild. Always it ever. Wild. Sometimes it look you can get the tiniest amount and it will it will beat you into the ground. And sometimes you can get a full cup. It's not about the dosage. It's what the medicine is going to do for you. It's her choice. You're just there for the ride. And if you truly do give in, She's going to give you everything you need and more, not what you want. That's the difference. Everyone, you see a lot of the psychedelic tourism happening, and that is where the dangers lie. People are offering medicine in unsafe settings without integration, without proper preparation, and that's where things can get dicey, and that's what I'm fearful for, and that's why I speak to integration so much, and I speak to these organizations and why you have to be very careful where you go because we are in this age. We're in a psychedelic boom. We're in another wave of this. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. What, what did you learn? What happened? So the first, three, the first three were very much a – if you were to take a line and you were to put – the current time frame, the future, and your past. I was down in the past where trauma started. And we worked our way each night through a different level of trauma up to the present time. Those three nights, the first night, 
very much focused on my loss. That's where I saw my daughter. That's where she sat with me. That's where I had that moment of peace and understanding that she is always around. She's just with my son all of the time. And that's why I hear him talking in his room all of the time. He's talking to someone, right? Um, so she sat with me and she brought her to me and she, it was this, it was this, it's so hard to describe how powerful it feels when you're not losing your mind, but you're seeing things that you can't understand, but you're still seeing them. And at some point you just sit there and go, all right, I guess this is what I is. I am now. I guess this is what I see. This is how I feel. I guess this is my life and that's okay. And once you understand and you accept the medicine, that's when it really comes. Now, the second night we started to, we really started to dive into the anger that I not only held, but that was my anger would walk into the room before I walked into the room. Always to the point where you could say something as a joke and no matter what, even if I thought it was funny, I would snap back. So I have chronic pain in my shoulder and this is very hard to describe because people don't understand how this could happen to the point where I used to have to take so much CBD every day. I was on Tylenol, I was on chronic pain medication all the time for it and nothing. I couldn't do a push up. I couldn't carry my son in that arm. I, it was very, very weak. I went into that ceremony and I just asked, can you please take my pain away? Whatever that pain is to you, please just take it away. Because I didn't want to say my physical pain or my psychological pain, I just, my pain, can you just cleanse it out somehow? And she did that, but she did it in a way that was very, uh, it was an illustration so that I would understand. And so her way of doing that to me was to, <laughs> to turn my body into the body of a wolf sit me down and explain to me that you can be a pack leader, that you can be the one that moves people along. You can be the one that never leaves anyone behind, but you don't have to bite anymore because you have an entire pack of people around you in this room. You can put your teeth away and use them when you need them, but you don't always need them anymore because I was always very aggressive. I was like a dog that had been abused. You went near me, I would snap. Not because I wanted to, but because that's what I had learned, behavior. Mm. And so she showed that to me by forming that my body into that and showing that to me. And when I went up to get my prayer, I felt this moment of my head snapping back like someone was grabbing my ponytail. And I felt something come out of my throat and out of my shoulder and out of my body, physically leave my body, and my body collapsed. What do you think it was? It was the trauma that my bought my shoulder. It was the trauma that was associated with my injuries that had never healed because we understand the body keeps the score. Yeah. That's just the yep. truth. And that was what was removed. I can bang out push-ups now like it's no problem. We'll do that after. Okay. My point is I can do things that physiologic, like from a physiological standpoint, I should not be able to do without a collarbone, without a, with a separated shoulder, but I don't have chronic pain there anymore. And that's because the medicine was able to pull the trauma out of me. And this is where science and medicine, this is where it gets hard because things are happening that we can't fully understand. That's absolutely true. That's very well said. I talk a lot about evidence-based medicine, and I think that it's critical. And there are absolutely things above and beyond 
my understanding, anybody's understanding mm-hmm. that happen that truly move the needle. So much so that I, the last night, went through a situation where it actually, it threw me off today. I drove to Marcus's house and down the end of the road, there was a sign that said, welcome to Valhalla. And I started bawling my eyes out and I drove to his door and I had never met this man a day in my life. And I got out of the car and this first impression is me, is me like me wiping my eyes. And he goes, you good? So your sign threw me a little bit. And he asked me something that I've never been asked and it punched me in every single cell. And he goes, what? You didn't think you were going to make it there? I, it hit so hard. And it's because on the third night, a friend of mine that was an American soldier that was on his third deployment, he did a second with me in his third. It was his last deployment. He rolled over an IED and he made it, but his heart burst in his chest and he passed away. Him and I had a relationship where the Americans so much, (laughs) I love Americans, they were only drinking soda at the FOB. What? They were not drinking enough water, so they were becoming so severely dehydrated, they were passing out outside the wire. We were allowed soda. I did not drink soda. Good for you. I never, I don't, it's disgusting. Um, But you Americans get Gucci kit. You get all the kit. You guys spend your tax dollars on everything Gucci kit. I'm not going to lie, Shane goes, ask her if she was eating uh, Sour Patch Kids. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I know. Anyway. I know all about it. (laughs) And so him and I, Chris came up with an idea. He goes, I will trade you Oakley's for cans of Coke. And I was like, done. So I became his Coke dealer. And the running joke was when we would do laundry, we'd listen to Dane Cook and he would drink cans of Coke. The night he passed away, he came to me in my dreams and he cracked a can of Coke and said nothing. It was like this, I'm good. It's okay. And I went through a lot of survivor guilt with uh, the guys that we're on deployment because after I left, we lost a couple more than I knew. And then this had happened and I was not in a good state. So this third night doing ayahuasca, all I asked was, again, can you please take my pain away? And during the prayer, when they were singing the Icaros, I had two people. So I had Griff beside me and another individual beside me, Bishop. And they both said to me afterwards, you weeped like you were in the most excruciating pain. I lied on my side and I just remember... Chris showed up and the Icaros got very loud. And he said, you need to come with me right now. I am not supposed to be here. I am not allowed to come over here. We're not allowed to do this, but we're giving you this because you need it to move on. And he took my hand and sucked me through. The only thing I can describe is a black hole of some type where it's like a movie where all of a sudden they just got sucked. And I woke up in Valhalla. And I was standing at the gate with him, and it was just this clear wall, if you will, and it looked like Marcus Luttrell's house today. And it threw me so much because he said, I could see them all. I could see all the guys. And they were all just sitting there in their versions of their uniforms with their different accents and their different placements. And I could, Chris sat down with me and he said, listen, you can come with me now and you can sit and you're going to talk with everyone And every single one of them gave me the cut the suicide shit speech. Cut it out. You're alive for a reason. We're here to help you and back you. Cut the shit. Because what you can't see is there's a clear wall here. 
And if you, you decide to pull the pin that way, you're not coming in here with us and you will sit there and you will watch us for the rest of your life. And that hit me so hard. And what helped me move through the survivor's guilt. And so people can say, this is the subconscious working. This is, can be chemical. This can be whatever you want to say. But I believe I was truly there. And I fully feel as if I had those conversations in person. This was like me and you sitting right here. And the one individual that died that day, that my first experience of death overseas, looked at me and said, there's not a damn thing you could do. You did not cause this. You got all of me because there was, I was fearful because I saw another piece go. I was quite concerned we didn't get it all. And I kept saying that on repeat to people and some people did go back and check. So we got it all. So there was this, there was this fear that I had left him behind and he just kept telling me, it was fine. I'm good. You didn't leave anything. And then Chris was finishing the can of Coke and he said, when I'm done this, you have to go. And that's when I cracked and I said, I don't want to, I'm not going back. I'm here. I'm staying here. I don't want to go back. You can't make me. I can't do this. I can't be here. I can't live like this. I don't want to live like this. And he said, it's not a choice. You have to go back. You have a journey and a path that you need to go down. And we're going to be here to push you. We're going to be here to help you, but you can't be here because it's not your time. And he finished the can of Coke. And I just kept saying, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. I cannot do this again. And it sucked me back. And then I was fully aware and I was fully in my body. And I just saw Mama Aya pick me up and sit me in her lap. And I remember looking up at her like I was a baby and she went, you're going to heal now. Just be patient with me. You're going to heal now. And then she's lied me back down and ceremony ended. And that was my first experience. And since then I've sat uh, six other times with, with ayahuasca to, that's when I say it's every time I go, we're on a different level and we're on something different because she completes the circuit. It feels like for me, she, the medicine will see that I'm missing a part of the healing that I can't get past, she will allow me to do the work in that. So if you were to take your two, your, you know, your two synapses and, and that it's, we're not, she just gives me that. Okay. Now we move and now we move and that's how we keep healing. And so the medicine, whether it held space for me, whether it allowed the walls to come down for my brain to rationalize and process, whatever the medicine does, it is something that I will be internally grateful for, for every moment of my existence. And that's why I advocate so fiercely for it, because there is something so profound that is happening that whether we can trace it or not, I do not need science to tell me that it works. I know it works. How far healed do you feel? I don't know that anyone is ever 100%. Because what is 100% and who is perfect? And point that person who's perfectly healed to me. I don't know that we're ever meant to be fully healed. I think that if we got to a point where we felt fully, fully 100% healed, we could, there's nothing else to learn. That's like being enlightened. It's like, how far can you go? I think at this point in my life, I'm doing quite fantastic. Um, with the brain treatment and everything else I've been doing, I don't, if I have a bad day, it's a bad day for about an hour. 
It's not a bad day for a day or a week or a month. I'm able to pull myself out of these things, utilizing all of the tools that I have in my toolbox, which I've gathered over a decade. And so the other thing I would say is healing is not linear and my days are not linear and some days are great. And on the days that are supposed to be great, they might end up being just really hard for no reason at all. And so I honor those days and I respect those days. And those are the days I say, okay, well, I've just pushed too hard or you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have watched that. Maybe I know better, but I did it anyway. Or, hey, maybe I need to take a minute on the suicide conversation. Maybe I just need something lighter for a moment. And I'm aware of that. And I, I set those boundaries for myself and I don't push past them anymore because I understand what the repercussions will be and the fallout can look like. Do you believe that when it's someone's time, it's their time? 100%. More, that that's the most accurate statement. I can't, I can't describe you how accurate that is. I don't think you can change a damn thing. I think we like to think that we can play God and I like to think that we can have longevity. So my husband's really into life extension and he's so fascinated by it. And he, he follows this individual who, I can't remember his name for the life of me, but his goal is to stay 18 like live like he's 18, like have the, the health, the, the metabolics of an 18-year-old, and he spends his whole life around, around health. While he's spending his whole life around health, he's missing the point. He's, he's, he's missing the point of living. He's missing the point of the beauty of aging. I think it does not matter how much time we get on this earth. It's what you choose to do with it. And it doesn't matter if you have 300 years, 100 years, 50 years. You have to act as if it's your last day. And that's the way I live. And I, but I, I don't, I don't just say that I mean that. And I think that's a strategy. If people were to look at their life and go, I don't need to be 50% tomorrow better than I was yesterday. I just need to be 1% better than I was yesterday. And that will stack and that will give you a fulfilled life. But this living and breathing and, and doing everything in order to try and extend a life that you're just overlooking while you're actually here, that makes me sad. I think it's a really good point. You know, um, there's something to be said for being able to utilize the years that you have in a very capable way, mm -hmm. in a mentally sharp way, in a physically strong way, which, you know, you've exemplified. I agree with you. I think that the time is planned. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've seen a lot of death and I, it's just eerie how that works. I'm curious through your time in Afghanistan, you saw a lot of, I don't even know if negative things is the right word. Let's just say stress and trauma. Mm -hmm. Did you see beauty there? Of course. What did you see? There's a ton of beauty in, in places like that. We just don't look at it. We don't highlight it. Because if you did, we couldn't justify going and and bombing people like like they don't exist. There was so much beauty in the way that people had conversation. So for example, I had somebody on my show recently, Travis Peterson from the Moral Compass Federation, and we talked about this. And he said, you know, nobody really understood unless you understood the culture how beautiful that country can actually be and that the, the people are. He goes, you know, if you ask somebody in North America, how's your family? You're going to get great, good, 
or so-and-so's blah, blah, blah. You go to Afghanistan, you better be ready <laughs> for an hour at least because they want to share with you their family. They want to share their culture. They wanted to express to you what it meant to be an Afghani. I had a situation where there was a woman, uh, actually it was a little girl. I have a photo of it. It's in my book. And um, she had never seen a photo on the back of a camera of herself. And her and I took a photo together. And I showed it to her and it was my officer's hot pink camera because I didn't have a camera. And um, she grabbed the camera out of my hand. She ran inside the compound and took it. And everyone just looked around and I said, well, I guess my camera's gone. And I, when I went in, what I, was, what I was shown was the women, some of the women had shaved their legs. And they pulled up their burqa to show me. They're trying to, trying to be West. I'm trying to be like you. I'm trying to show you that I'm, I'm assimilating like you guys want us to, right? I'm, I'm doing what you said. And what blew my mind was in all of the horrible things that were happening, in all of the death and destruction and constant loss that was happening in that country and has been happening for so, for so long, they were still willing to feed you whatever they had, they were still willing to sit with you and tell stories about their family and their lives. They cared. Somehow they weren't hardened to the death and destruction that they lived in daily. This was just their life. And they were proud of what they had left or what they were accomplishing or what they did do. And they just wanted to share that with you. And there was so much light in the children's eyes considering they lived in one of the worst, most bombed countries on our planet. And it makes me wonder how we don't have that here in North America when you can walk down the street and go to Starbucks and you can go get a job anywhere you want or live anywhere you want and you don't have the fear of bombs dropping on your head every day. And yet somehow we can't be happy here, but these kids who have no shoes and no running water, who don't speak or, 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 literally, or who are illiterate and will never most likely leave that little rural area, they were happy. They were happy with what they had. They were grateful for what they had. They didn't know any difference. So of course there's no comparison, but they were beautiful souls who just wanted to be seen and heard and acknowledged. And I've never seen anything like it. There's so much beauty in war, and that may be an oxymoron, but if you look for it, it's there. I love that. Last question. Okay. Um, thank you so much for all your time. Of course. What advice would you give non-military individuals mm -hmm. um, on post-traumatic growth or trauma, or experience on potentially anything that you value, like being resilient, or as my girlfriend, one of my physician friends says, sturdy. Mm, I like um, that. What, what advice would you give? Oh, that's a, that's a very uh, overarching question, because there's so much advice. You can give it as long or as short as okay. you want. Everybody listening is literally at the edge of their seat. Well... First and foremost, especially for civilians or anybody who's listening to the show, turn the news off. Stop it. Stop it right now. None of that is helping you. It is harming you more than you can imagine. Stop the death scrolling. If you are seeing things that make you feel unwell, delete it. 
if there are people that make you feel unwell, you are not obligated to ingest their bullshit. Turn it off. That's okay. You do not have to do those things. The reason I say that is because people think it's just about what you eat and what you put into your mouth, but it's not. It's about who you expose yourself to. It's about what you see with your eyes, what you give access to. And people think, like I said, that that just means food. It means overarching. It means you are the sum of the five people around you. If you have shitty people around you, you're going to not be well. That could be bad behaviors. That could be, um, oh my gosh, how you act on a daily basis, your energy that you give off. That could be the influence that they are in terms of diet and nutrition. The next would be move your body. Just please get up and move. I'm, I'm, I try to be empathetic, but I'm so sick and tired of people telling me that I'm fat phobic, that I do not see that there is beauty in everyone. It has nothing to do with beauty. It has nothing to do with what somebody's value is. You have more value as a healthy individual. You are what we call a liability to the system when you are unhealthy. Mentally, physically, it does not matter. If you are eating cheeseburgers and bullshit, you're going to feel that way. People do not understand how much your gut biome affects your mental wellness. So knock it off and go for a walk. If walking is difficult because... This is what we do in my group on Signal because we have a group on Patreon and we give you challenges every month. And I these, love it. Yeah, these are not crazy challenges. These are let's start habit stacking and breaking bad habits. So these are cut caffeine at 12 o'clock, seven hours of sleep, wake up in the same 30 minutes. These are we're not going to look at our phone the first hour before bed. These are things that we should know as grown adults, but we for some reason overlooked because we've been distracted by everything else, right? So it comes down to... Fix your friends. If your friends suck, you're going to suck. Sorry, that's the reality. Find better people. And that may sound harsh, but who do you want to be in this world? And are they helping you get there? Are they making you feel like you can achieve that? If not, we need to have a hard look at that. If walking and running is hard or moving is hard, let's start with something small. Walk to the mailbox one day. Then the next day, try it twice a day. And if you feel like you can keep doing that, let's keep on that for at least two weeks. Let's talk about what you're putting in your body in terms of liquid. Why do we have an obsession with over-caffeinating ourselves? They have an obsession in America and Canada like I've never seen. I've never seen the size of drinks at Starbucks. It is obscene. <laughs> Just stop caffeine at 12 o'clock. Just stop caffeine at 12 o'clock. Not going to lie. That is a very hard one for me. Ketones in the afternoon. Okay. If you have an issue, your brain needs fuel. Ketones. All right. Not difficult. Gonna try it. I usually do it in the morning. I have I'm a whole try. bunch for you in the car. I will give you. They're HVMN, they're ketone shots. Okay. These things are a game changer. Okay. That's not going to affect your sleep at all. All right, I'm gonna try it. And then the same simple ones. That's not difficult. Don't put caffeine in your face the second you wake up. Give your body a minute. Go put some sunlight in your eyes. Like these are all things you're asking me to tell you. Like, what do I tell everyone I'm working with? These are the things. They're small steps. And it's a little bit of movement every day, and you stack that movement. If you can get yourself to just moving 30 minutes a day, I don't mean strenuous. I mean just walking. The difference it's going to make in your life is going to blow your mind. Then we start stacking weight. Then we start building muscle. Then we start looking at, okay, maybe McDonald's three days a week isn't great. Maybe we start getting it down to once a week. 
Then maybe we don't do it till once a month. Then maybe we cut it out and stretch it out because you can't just stop these things. These are things that people have grown up with, right? And so if you say, well, we're just not eating junk food anymore, good luck at being successful with that. Give yourself some grace, bite-sized chunks, and know that it's not going to be linear. You might fall, but it's how you choose to act when you do fall. Are you going to get back up? Are you going to fall back into old bad habits? And one of the last things is, for your mental wellness, not just the what you eat and what you see and, and what you uh, do for movement, if you're struggling, ask for help. You are stronger in my eyes. You are some of the strongest people in anyone's eyes if you just say, hey, I, I, I don't have this right now. I don't know what I need because guess what? You don't also need to know what you need. You just need to say it so that that can then be open. The conversation can start. Okay, maybe you need a psychedelic treatment. Maybe you need an SSRI. Maybe there's been borderline things going on there your whole life that that might need an intervention here. So asking for help is the la- is the is the next big step and it is often the scariest one for others and it is often the one that will stop people from doing anything. Fear is a motivator, but it is also the thing that can break you and it can cause everything in your life to just dead stop. There's nothing to be fearful when getting help. It is hard work, but that's the scariest thing. You will come out the other side, but you have to sometimes go through the dark first to get to the light. So you have to start. You just have to start healing because it's not helping you to bleed on everyone around you. At some point, you have to do the work or life is going to be a lot harder for you than it needs to be. So if you just start doing all these little things, not all at once, small steps at a time, maybe we just work on hydration this month. Maybe we're going to food this month. Then we work on movement. But if you just start, that is the key to healing. But you have to be willing to start. Kelsey, Sharon. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. You are amazing. And I know that if this is even a quarter as impactful as it's been on me, oh, gosh. then I know it's absolutely going to blow people's minds. I'm going to include where to find you. I'm sure we'll have you back. Thank you for everything that you're doing and how strong that you are showing up. I know it's not easy. I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. It is not easy to be the first to get bloody. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't necessarily mean that uh, literally, <laughs> right? But figuratively. Yeah. And you're doing some amazing work. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, such an honor. And to get to sit across from somebody who's so emphatic in the way that you talk about things and how you care so deeply about your community. And that's why you go out and say what you say and do what you do. And you and you you take it on the chin. It, I got to say, it's uh, it's easy to do what I do when I have examples like you. So thank you for having me. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 
Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.